Jack Abelito was taking his 11-year-old daughter to school, and he was late. And in a hurry, he turned right on red where it was prohibited. Uh-oh, he said, I just made an illegal turn. His daughter consoled him and said, it's all right, Dad, the police car behind us just did the same thing. <laughs> Breaking rules, crossing lines, violating laws happens. Some would say that rules and boundaries are wrong. In an interview uh, 20 years ago, singer Elton John said, I'm gay, I've got enough money, I don't have to follow any rules, it's simply a fantastic life when you don't have any parameters. It's brilliant. But the reality is that uh, we can't live without parameters. There must be laws, limits, boundaries. Without them, life is chaos. We are in a series going through Genesis, and uh, in these chapters 5 and 6, the series is called Leave a Legacy. And last week we talked about generations, the leaving a legacy to the generations to come. And the two-word phrase I left you with was... Uh, Walk on. There we go. One person got it. Fantastic. <laughs> this morning, we're going to talk about boundaries as we go into chapter 6. How you deal with boundaries impacts your legacy. Life choices you make each day either add or detract from that. So why should we live a certain way? What, what would it be like to exceed the limit in this area or that area of life? Well, Genesis 6, 1-8 answers those questions. Uh, this odd story has a pointed message. Uh, the story involves angels, demons, sex, violence, heroic men, and beautiful women. And it tells us about boundaries. Uh, even though this occurs very near the beginning of human history, it's a message from God for us today in our world. God created a, 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 an amazing universe. His crowning achievements were the ones created in his image, male and female. But sin came in, bringing pain, and death. After one murder, other murders followed. Some people worshipped God, but most did not. And many in the human family ignored the limits. So let's pick it up in verse 1. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Now if we're going to be able to understand the story correctly, then we have to establish the identity of these sons of God. The Hebrew phrase is bene Elohim. Now, without getting into technical detail, I'll just state my conclusions and my understanding of this text. I believe the sons of God were not human because they're contrasted with the daughters of men. And in several other places, the Bible uses the phrase sons of God, bene Elohim, or something like it, to refer to angels or heavenly beings. And there are just those the examples in Job and Psalms and so on. Uh, we also have biblical accounts, record, of a group of angels who in the past sinned and uh, were kept, are kept in judgment. That's in Jude 6 and 2 Peter 2. So I believe these sons of God are fallen angelic beings. And this is the oldest view. It's not the view held by some godly teachers I respect, uh, but this view was supported by ancient theologians such as Justin, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Cyprian, and Ambrose. So if the sons of God are fallen angels, then what Genesis 6 tells us is that they were captivated by the sensual beauty of these human women. And that word beautiful 
in describing them is the same word used when Eve saw the forbidden fruit that was good and pleasing. It was beautiful. Uh, The text does not indicate that they took these women by force, that the relationships seem to be consensual. These supernatural beings won over these beautiful women and married them. Perhaps the women were attracted to the possibility of immortality as daughters of God or something. But the couples had children together, producing a special breed of people that we'll talk about more in a moment. The problem is that angels and humans are not to cross-procreate. They had overstepped God's boundaries. And so look at God's response to this situation. Verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days shall be 120 years. I like the translation of the word abide. It's God is saying that his spiritual life force is not going to remain in his human creation forever. This refers to the removal of God's life-giving spirit. Uh, the, the, The result of this was the limitation of human lifespans. Previously, if you remember from last week, apparently not, but humans were living (laughs) to incredible ages. And this illicit coupling of humans and fallen angels would continue that and would create a whole new set of problems. And so God set a limit, and average lifespans were now shortened. And this is a general limit, not a rule. In the biblical account, some live a bit longer than that. Uh, Others die before that limit. So look what happens next, verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. So here we learn something, that the offspring of the fallen angels and human women were called Nephilim. Uh, that word is not translated, that, that's, the, it, that's because the meaning is uncertain. Uh, Ancient Jewish texts and translations of the Hebrew Scriptures render Nephilim in terms that describe men of extraordinary height. The Septuagint renders this term gigantes, or giants. Uh, The origin of the term Nephilim may have come from the Hebrew root nephal, which literally means fallen ones. Fallen ones. So elsewhere in the Bible, Numbers 13.33, for example, the word Nephilim is used to describe human giants. And if supernatural beings and humans came together, you would expect an uncommon result. Here may be an explanation of the great myth stories from ancient civilizations. Uh, Nephilim, the stories of gods marrying humans, may be based on this biblical event. Ancient mythologies speak of superhuman beings like the Olympians and Titans, the gods in Greek mythology who warred against each other. Achilles, who, the, the hero of the Trojan War, and the central character of the Iliad. Uh, Cyclops, a primordial race of giants with a single eye in the middle of the forehead. Gorgons, from earliest Greek mythology, the word gorgos means uh, dreadful and uh, refers to creatures so horrifying that to look upon them would turn uh, someone into stone. So I think these ancient mythologies may be based, may have originated from this biblical event, the co-mingling of fallen angels and humans. And the result was a generation of larger-than-life beings who became famous for power and accomplishment. And you don't have to think hard to remember that the storyline of fallen angels visiting the earth, or angels in general visiting the earth and romancing humans or bringing destruction, is very much a part of our culture. Uh, for example, there are a bunch of movies with that theme, like Heaven Can Wait, 
fallen, city of angels, Constantine, the bishop's wife, both versions, dogma, angels in America, legion, the mortal instruments, Michael, meet Joe Black, the prophecy, and Gabriel, to name some of them. Now before we think, well, that sounds pretty good, I guess it ended okay, Uh, look at God's perspective, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. I remember that when God created the earth, he he saw everything was good, exceedingly good, and now everything is infected with wickedness, evilly continually grown in human affairs. Now, I want you to remember that the Bible presents human beings not as basically good, but as basically bad, completely sinful. The Bible says we are born enemies of God. Now, how can this be true when we know there are many good and noble and beautiful things being attempted and accomplished in our world today? Good and noble people. But the problem is with our hearts, the human heart. Until we bow to Jesus as king of the universe, our own agenda is what remains on the throne. Until our hearts are transformed, even our best actions and, and are, are, are filthy rags. Why? Well, because they're done by our own self-effort and for our own glory. And that leads to secret pride, where we say, well, look what I achieved. Look at who I helped. Look at what I did. Look what I sacrificed. And that kind of thinking steals glory from the God who created us. If you want to see evidence of this, uh, watch an interview of somebody on the local news who's doing charity work or some good deed. And the most common reason why they are doing that is it makes me feel good. Uh, That's self-centeredness and the pride of the human heart. So observing human evil, God regretted creating mankind. He was sorry. How can that be? How can the God who never makes mistakes regret something he did? Be sorry about it. And when we say we're sorry about something, what we usually mean is, I wish it never happened. But there are times we may do what is best and yet feel sorrowful about doing it, such as when we discipline our children. We feel sorry that it has to be done, even though we know it's the right thing to do. Now, Amy is not here today because she is with our three grandchildren right now. She's caring for them while their parents are on a trip. About five years ago, uh, both of us were taking care of the kids while the parents were traveling, and I broke a few of the house rules. Uh, Here's a clip of us eating things we were not supposed to eat and me making an inappropriate comment. Oliver, who made our pizza? Jeff. Jeff. Okay, did he do a good job? Very good. Okay, and Sam, who delivered our pizza? Uh, uh. (laughs) (laughs) He got the first letter. Who delivered our pizza? Alex. Alex, you did it. Okay, great. Did he do a good job? He was nice to you, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he was nice. Virginia? Have you tasted the pizza yet? Yes. I don't think you have. <laughs> okay. All right. And there's Grandma. Was All it right. delicious? Oh. Sam, how, I mean, Oliver, how many pieces have you had now? Three. Three. Oh, my goodness. Plus, you've had some Parmesan bread bites, right? And you're going to have some sticks. And maybe a beer.
All right, I was kidding about the beer. Uh, but you notice how much side-eye Amy gave me in that. And now at ages 12, 10, and 8, they still need correction, though. That's why she's there. They need help. They need cor- So Amy's not only going to shower them with love, no pizza, uh, but discipline will be necessary. She doesn't regret having grandchildren, but she is sorry for having to discipline them, not looking forward to that, even though her, in her mind she knows that's right. That's what happened with God. Uh, on the level of God's divine will, creation was no mistake. But the way man turned out brought God's sorrow. God's heart is broken over humans who choose to live without him, who rebel against his laws, who cross his lines, who ignore his kindness. And the words deeply troubled here, it's the same term used to describe Eve's pain in childbirth. God experiences, in a sense, labor pains as a result of his human creation. And so this coupling of humans and angels was more evidence of overstepping God's boundaries. Every thought, it says, was shaped toward evil. And it's so terrible that God's prepared to wipe out his creation. Verse 7. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. So the Lord expresses this sorrow for creating humans in the first place. And this is a glimpse into the heart of God. In some ways, God suffers at our hands. Uh, Our disobedience pains him in some way. He's not a distant, absent creator. He's not indifferent to what's going on in our world. His connection with us is great. He's directly interested in our lives. Uh, And and that, that wasn't the view held by a number of our founding fathers, even though all of them used religious language. Most of them, or many of them, were deists, meaning that they believed God was a distant, impersonal force who did not intervene in our universe. And a little chart just shows you while all, all of those listed there use religious language, uh, they, they, some de- men like Ethan Allen, Thomas Paine, James Monroe were in that deist camp, and to a lesser extent, so were George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams, who were not Trinitarian Christians. Uh, there are other notable figures like Sam Adams, John Jay, Patrick Hen- Henry, who believe the God of the Bible was actively involved in the course of human events. And that is what's presented from Genesis to Revelation, a God who knows and cares and acts to carry out his plan of redemption in human history. And so this Lord, the God who knows it all, was grieved by the evil spreading in his world as wickedness multiplied. He sighed over the rebellion of his creatures. And yet even in that dismal darkness, there was a ray of hope shining. And that's verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. One man would receive grace, mercy, that's favor. Noah would be saved. Now, there wasn't any grace in Noah. The grace was in God. Noah was saved by grace, and that's how salvation always comes. Not because we deserve it. Salvation is all God's doing. Out of love, he gave his only son to be the sacrifice for our sin. By his bloody death on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty I deserved. Uh, He carried my sin on his own perfect body. I don't deserve that gift, and neither do you. But it's only applicable if you receive the gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, the Bible says, only if we accept it. And not to believe and receive it means we are condemned already. So these eight verses of Genesis 6, why are they in the Bible? Uh, What should we learn? What's the point? Well, here's here's one idea. That when we ignore God-given boundaries, it produces giant problems. 
Here's what happens when you cross the line. Here's what happens when you ignore the commands and open the forbidden door. You say, well, shouldn't we take risks and have adventure? Absolutely. But within God's parameters. And what's the difference between freedom and rebellion? What's the difference between creativity and disobedience? Well, freedom stays within God's boundaries. Creativity plays by God's rules. And whatever the situation, this odd little story in Genesis 6 tells us that when we ignore God's boundaries, the results can be monstrous. Selfishness, mismanagement, indifference, recklessness, infidelity, extravagance, anger, or lies create collateral damage. We break the rules, there's collateral damage. Like the Nephilim, the problem you initiated can outlive you, impacting generations to come. You can ignore God's boundaries for marriage, for money, for worship, for service, for love, for forgiveness, but it produces something very ugly. See, your legacy of faith rests on your willingness to live within God's boundaries. Those of us who've had children, uh, I'm sure you recognize, you, like me, made mistakes in raising them. Uh, and, and maybe some of those mistakes have negative results you can see today. Or maybe you're concerned about your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren. Let, let me tell you, it's not too late to have impact there. That, that's why this Legacy Grandparenting Summit that we're hosting in October is so important and critical that you at this stage of your life can have an opportunity to make an impact, a spiritual difference in the generations to follow. And so I would encourage you, if you have that time available in October, that you sign up and be part of that Grandparenting Summit. And we want to leave a legacy as a church as well. Uh, we're, we're part of this ministry today, as Randy said, because of uh, those who came before us invested in God's kingdom. And they lived within God's boundaries uh, with their resources, with their giftedness, with their energies, and with their time. So let me list a few examples of boundaries that might challenge you in your life. Uh, maybe a family member is driving you crazy. Uh, you can't even talk on the phone without conflict. You know the command to honor others. You know the command to love others. But does that imply when they're insane, is what you think. <laughs> and so you are struggling with a relational boundary. Or maybe you spend and spend. Maybe mo much of your money goes just to pay the minimum on maxed out credit cards. Or, or maybe you're not in debt at all, but you do a lot of shopping because it makes you feel better and you call it retail therapy. Or, or maybe you're really good at pampering yourself uh, and so much so that you fail to be generous to others or you neglect giving to meet kingdom needs. Scripture says to honor the Lord with your wealth, but you ignore that and you cross a financial boundary. Or... Maybe you desperately care about your friendships. You want to be accepted by that peer group that you care about. But it, it sometimes feels like your Christian belief system gets in the way of that. And there are biblical principles that you know, that you've learned, that, that interfere with your connection with, with, to friends who don't share those same beliefs. And so out of a great desire to fit in, to get their approval, you cross a moral boundary, an ethical boundary. Or maybe your marriage is failing. You feel like life is passing you by, and then you meet someone while you're out walking the dog, you're at the gym, and a friendship forms, and you begin to think things like, well, life is too short to avoid going after what really makes me happy. And infidelity and serial marriages are seen as normal in our culture, and so you begin to feel that way too. And even though Scripture commands God's people to live in holiness and with self-control, you're tempted to cross a sexual boundary. Or maybe what they did to you was just so wrong. No question, so wrong. And you can't stop the bad thoughts about them and what they did. Bitterness gnaws at you. And it doesn't seem to let up at all. 
The offender could have been a former friend or a family member or a group of Christians. And you know the command to forgive. And you know that that resentment is doing you more damage than anyone else. But you hang on to your anger and you refuse to deal with it properly. And so you cross a spiritual boundary. Those are just some examples of boundaries that we can be crossing. And the truth is, what if you have crossed that line? What if you've gone outside the parameters God has drawn, the lines God has drawn? Let me tell you and remind you, there is no failure too great for God to accept your return. There's no disobedience that will exclude you from his forgiveness if you sincerely repent and turn around. Through the blood of Jesus, there is astonishing forgiveness, and nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And he's calling you today to experience his love, his grace, his forgiveness. It's not too late to restore a legacy of godliness. It takes a willingness to live within God's boundaries. Psychologist Barry Swartz gave a TED Talk a few years ago called The Paradox of Choice. And Swartz ended his talk by pointing to a picture like this of two fish in a fishbowl. And he said... The truth is that if you shatter the fishbowl so that everything is possible, you don't have freedom, you have paralysis. Everybody needs a fishbowl. He said the absence of some metaphorical fishbowl is a recipe for misery and disaster, unquote. That's the message of Genesis 6, 1 to 8. God calls us to stay within the lines he has drawn, within the boundaries and parameters he is drawn because true freedom and creativity is find, found inside the lines God has drawn. Uh, Elmer and Dorothy were married for over 60 years. They raised five boys in a house about the size of a coffee shop. Uh, Elmer was a, a, a little guy in stature, not wealthy, but he was faithful to God and caring to others. And, and when I first met Elmer, it didn't take long. He, he would... When I would preach or teach, he would write in his, the margin of his Bible the date that I spoke on that passage. And so anytime I ever quoted from that passage or got anywhere near it, he said, oh, you preached on that in August of 1996. <laughs> and it really, really annoyed me. So I, <laughs> I, said, I really wanted to steal his Bible so I could re-preach some old sermons after I'd been there 10 years. But he kept really good track. At uh, age 91, Elmer went into the hospital. I went to visit him. He read scripture to me. Uh, he prayed for me. And then he said, we're going to sing now. And I said, okay. And he, we sang, Jesus loves me. And he has a terrible voice, but we sang. And it was incredible. Um, and then uh, he, he was strong to the finish. I did Elmer's funeral and celebrated the glorious heritage that he had left behind, he and Dorothy. Not famous, not rich, but faithful. And I said at his funeral, Elmer was not a perfect man, but he founded his faith on a perfect Christ. And there his soul found rest that continued to those final days in a hospital bed, where surrounded by his family, he sang of Jesus' love. When you live within God's boundaries, the result is freedom and beauty. And when you do that, instead of producing problems you can't handle, you leave a legacy. Would you stand and let me close with prayer? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.